a lot of the folks I interact with now, whether it's a, a newly post-collegiate athlete who's still got goals that they want to achieve, or um, a middle-aged athlete who has a goal that they want to achieve, or uh, you know, a general fitness goal they want to achieve, or um, I'd like to go for that Boston qualifier, or whatever it is. Um, most of these goals are achievable if you stick with it and like keep building the tower. I call it the Jenga tower, you know? And so my outlook on coaching generally is like, okay, let's build the tower and, you know, we'll eventually get there. We don't necessarily have, sometimes you do have artificial timelines, but if you can avoid them, that's better. Um, and just concentrate on building on what you have. Just done. one block at a time. Yeah. And not worried about what you aren't. So I try to think inductively about coaching. And I think that's, partly due to some of these experiences where um, let's assume we're going to get there. You know, it's just a question of how and not if. That's Dina Evans. And this is episode 56 of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. What's up, Morning Shakeout listeners? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and welcome back to my podcast, where every week I bring you conversations with some of the top athletes, coaches, personalities, and behind-the-scenes people in the sport of running. I've got a good one for you today with Dina Evans. Dina is currently the coordinator and coach of the Peninsula Distance Club, a competitive post-collegiate team based in Palo Alto, California that she founded in 2007. She also coached at Stanford University from 1999 to 2005. And in 2003, she was named the NCAA Women's Cross Country Coach of the Year after leading the Cardinal to the national title. A few of her athletes during those years are some names that you might recognize, like Lauren Fleshman, Sarah Hall, Alicia Vargo, Melinda Elmore, and many others. She's also been on the coaching staff for Team USA at multiple world championships. And in addition to her coaching accolades, Dina was a standout athlete at Stanford from 1992 to 1996, where she was a three-time All-American in track and also a star player on the soccer team. We covered a lot of different topics in this conversation, from getting into multiple sports at a young age, to her thoughts on specialization for young athletes, her career at Stanford and how she juggled being a two-sport athlete, her relationship with Coach Vin Lanana and how he influenced her as both an athlete and a coach, how she got into coaching and what she's learned working with different levels of athletes over the past 20 years, what's exciting her and what she would change about the sport of running right now, and a whole lot more. So we won't waste any more time. Let's get right into it with the awesome Dina Evans. Well, um, why don't we get right into it then? Dina Evans, welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thank you. It's an honor to be with you. I might have to rename this the Stanford Alumni Podcast because you are the second straight Stanford grad to be on the show. Ryan Hall was episode 55. I've also had Lauren Fleshman, who you coached. I've had Rich Roll, who is a Stanford grad. And I believe there's one other in there, and I can't think of it off the top of my head. Sarah, I, maybe? Chris Derrick? I haven't had Sarah yet. I haven't had Chris Derrick. I'll have to go back and look. But needless to say, I think I've had more Stanford grads on the show than any other show. No, not oh, Garrett Heath. Wow. No, not Garrett yet. But I think I've had more Stanford grads than any other school. So As it should be, right? <laughs> I, uh, I'm going to stay silent on that one. <laughs> but it's an honor to have you here. Thank you for sitting down with me on such short notice. And where I want to start is I was stalking you on Strava a week or so ago Uh-oh. and saw that you had done a workout. It was 500, 400, 300, 200. And knowing 
your history, you were a middle distance runner at Stanford. I was like, that's a milers workout. Um, and obviously you're not racing the mile anymore. Those days are 20 some odd years. Thanks Mario. Past. But <laughs> when you're on the track doing a workout like that, and maybe you're not hitting the splits that you were when you were at your peak, but does it feel any different at your age now versus when you were at the top of your game? Well, I will say that um, I have been running long distances for a really long time. Like I ran my first half marathon when I was 11. So I've been at that side of things for a while and have enjoyed enjoyed that. Um, The middle distance thing is something that's probably my default natural habitat, really. Um, But I've long ago, I think coaching definitely did this. Um, You know, I I don't have a lot of lingering prideful feelings about those types of things. I, I would love to be able to do, you know, fast workouts all the time, but, um, it's not a good idea for my overall health. So in this particular instance, um, my training partner, Melinda and I, we had just done Tokyo a few weeks ago and her next race, I, she puts up with me as a coach and a training partner, which is kind of double jeopardy, but her next race is a shorter race. So we're trying to kind of turn the page a little bit. And also because we have been doing some longer stuff, we know that we occasionally need to, you know, touch base with a few things in order to just, uh, you know, move it or lose it, so to speak. But um, I just enjoy it when I finish the workout feeling in one piece. The reason I ask that is for me, I haven't trained for, mile or 5k seriously in over 15 years. Mm -hmm. And this past spring, I got back to doing some of that and I would get in the track and I was doing workouts I have not done since 2003. Mm. And it was along some of those lines, just shorter, faster, more intense stuff. And I'm nowhere near the splits that I was hitting when I was doing those as a senior in college, but the feeling is the same. And it brings me back a little bit to when I would do some of these same workouts when I was 20 years old, 21 years old. And I remember what that felt like. And if I'm being black and white about it, I'm like, man, I used to run these 400s in 62 seconds and now I can barely break <laughs> 70. Um, but it still feels the same. Yeah. There's something about that that feels really good. And that's what I was trying to get at with that question. Well, sorry for not taking the that's bait okay. very well. But um, yeah, I agree for sure. But I also think that that translates into the longer distances too. When I'm running a marathon, um, it, a marathon I think is a great equalizer, as you well know. Um, Everybody has to respect the distance, and nobody who's a first timer can can um, accurately really know how their body's going to react. You know whether you're Olympian caliber or you know first timer couch to marathon. So the battle, the mental battle, the needing you know the need to 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 do certain things in order to get the best out of yourself is the same process. It's just at different speeds. So. Um, I think doing those middle distance workouts, so that's middle distance with a lowercase m for us, <laughs> for sure. We weren't breaking any records out there either, but um, but it's the same. It's the same process, and I think as you age, uh, you know, running is something that uh, hopefully can be a lifelong pursuit. And the be one of the beautiful things about the sport is there are so many access points to it. And if you can kind of unpack your ego a little bit, you can let yourself enjoy those things and. Let it be that you know long-term partner for years and decades. You were a very good middle distance runner at Stanford, ran the 1500. You were an All-American a few times. You went to the Olympic trials in 96 or qualified for the Olympic trials in 96. When did you first realize that you had an aptitude for middle distance running? 
Well, first of all, I want to correct the record on that. I, somewhere on my bio, it says I, I qualified for Olympic trials. I hit the mark. The story I will tell, or I, hit, I hit, hit the mark and then was the second person not to actually go. I was in my dorm room and waiting for a landline phone call the day of graduation from Vin, who was in Atlanta, trying to work with John Chaplin to let myself and um, another woman from Dartmouth who had run about the same time as I had, uh, Kristen Manwaring. And um, like a, like the day I was the day before that I was supposed to leave, he called and was like, you know, they're they're not going to let you in. There's there was room, but they didn't let me in. So somehow that's I like somehow that's that I quali- qualified. So I just want to make sure that's that's not necessarily the case. Um, but what was your question again? <laughs> just I want to make sure that well, record's corrected. Well, either way, you were still a very good middle distance runner to even been in the running to have a spot on the starting line at the Olympic trials. But when did you first realize that you had an aptitude for middle distance running, that you were good at racing mile 800, those types of distances? Well, definitely elementary school, probably the presidential fitness test, 600 yards around the field at the school. It didn't, uh, it wasn't that hard, you know? And, um, we had these elementary school PE, uh, or little track meets with the schools that compete against each other. And, um, and I was pretty good at those, but I still, I would still get beat by the girls who were doing age group track and stuff like that. But it was, um, but I was okay. But I just, I didn't, um, I didn't have a, a problem with some of those more difficult kind of middle distancey efforts. Did you enjoy them? Um, I was a person who did a lot of sports and I enjoy and enjoyed the sports. I enjoyed being an athlete. I enjoyed competition. I also enjoyed success as most people do. And I think I didn't, I don't think I ever thought to think of like, am I enjoying running? Like, this is something, oh, I love running. I don't really ever think I thought about that. I just enjoyed competing and this was just an avenue that seemed like it, it made sense. But in middle school, I did uh, this alternative PE program where a teacher, she had started out in the 70s taking kids cross-country on bicycles from Seattle area. You know, there's a picture in the newspaper of these kids, they call the Cyclomates, with Richard Nixon. They rode from Seattle to D.C. in 1972, like on 10 speeds, you know, self-supported craziness. Um, and so she had all these different challenges. You had to apply to get into this PE program. And so some of these challenges included doing a, building up to doing a half marathon. You also had a triathlon at the end of the year. Different things like we walked around Lake Washington, which is 55 miles in one day. We ran from Mercer Island, which is where I grew up, to Tacoma, which is 29 miles in one day with stops. How old were you? 11 and 12. That's wild. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, so we did a variety of different things. She had us run different routes of various distances. And her ma- the main things that I think almost everybody who's participated in this program called Outdoor Fitness kind of have taken with them into whatever lives they've gone into um, are the element of persistence. So she really reinforced on us, like, don't walk. Not because of some sort of, like, snobby thing, but just you, and everybody who runs knows themselves that when if you're running and then you walk a little bit sometimes it's kind of it's more of like about a little mental break you know like you want to if you can keep that mental focus of running that's that's where you want to be i'm not you know saying bad things about gala walking or anything like that but just you know that if you let yourself walk you've kind of just given in a little bit and so whether or not you're running at like 
14-minute pace and barely just shuffling along. If you're kind of still running, you're kind of still in it mentally, if that makes sense. And so she would, she kind of impressed that upon us, like, hey, if you're just shuffling, keep shuffling. And also, you have to make this into something that you're sharing with other people. So I'm going to come around to the thing. So she would give us these routes with big hills in them or like long stairs, and she would like hide in the bushes, you know, and if you were walking, you got busted. But also if we, you know, say we're doing this walk around Lake Washington, you had like say eight miles or 12 miles you had to go and then parents would like meet us at the Burgermaster and Udab, by UW or, you know, at Seward Park. And if you, you know, didn't wait for the person behind you or on these hikes, you could go on in the mountains, you know, you would get busted. You had to wait for the person behind you. You had to give people a high five and say good job if it was like on an out and back. And those two things um, were huge lessons. Along the way, she would do things like we had the school 5K, like a PTA 5K, you know. And um, I was in eighth grade, and there's a sixth grader who's kind of a hotshot age grouper. She's subsequently became like my high school teammate and stuff and friend, but <laughs> she was like this hotshot sixth grader. And she's like, I bet money on you that you're going to beat this girl. Like she was, like, you know, she was, so I'm like, oh my gosh. So like, it was like this duel in the sun, you know, like uh, deal. So um, it was just a unique experience to go through and taught a lot of us, like a guy that... Um, some people might know in running a guy named Chris Hillier, who's my year, who works for Hoka in design. He um, went through this program as well. And there's several other people who are doing, I mean, a lot of people out there who have done things, but some running people might know Chris. You know, it just really imprinted on you kind of this, you know, the first time I ran a marathon as an adult, I was not worried about whether I would finish. Because you'd already been there, done that. Well, I just, I just, that would kind of, that confidence in like, okay, you're going to finish, just like be persistent was already plugged in there. Um, but then when I got to high school, strangely, I knew I wanted to play soccer, and that was in the fall when cross country was. So I was like, okay, well, I'll do track, because obviously the running thing is like going okay. Um, and then I couldn't be bothered to run the two mile even. It's all 800, 1500, or 1600, four by four. I don't know. Was, I went through like a weird period. You know, it's funny, not to make this about myself, but when I started running in high school, I ran track to keep in shape for basketball. And I remember telling the coach, I was not going to run longer than 800 meters. I had no interest. <laughs> yeah. And as general conditioning, the first week of practice, he had everyone doing these one mile loops. And I think I did four of them and I hated it at the time, but I stayed at the front with the top cross country guy. And sure enough, first meet Mario, you're running the two mile. And I'm like, I can't run two miles. He's yeah. like, no, it's like you ran two miles that first week of practice. You're going to be there. I'm like, oh, and look where it's led me. Yeah, um, I know. But to go back to, to you, it sounds like a lot of seeds were planted for you during that time when you were 11, 12, 13 years old. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. It changed the entire, well, because I spent most of my time as an adult in and around athletics, right. um, it really was a pretty seminal experience just as an outlook. Again, with just the persistence. So a, a lot of the po folks I interact with now, whether it's uh, a newly post-collegiate athlete who's still got goals that they want to achieve or um, a middle-aged athlete who has a goal that they want to achieve or, uh, you know, a general fitness goal they want to achieve or um, I'd like to go for that Boston qualifier or whatever it is. Um, most of these goals are achievable if you stick with it and, like, keep building the tower. I call it the Jenga tower, you know. And so my outlook on coaching generally is, like, okay, let's build the tower and, you know, we'll eventually get there. We don't necessarily have, sometimes you do have artificial timelines, but if you can avoid them, that's better. Um, and just concentrate on building on what you have. Just done. one block at a time. Yeah, and not worried about what you aren't. So I try to think inductively about coaching. And I think that's partly due to some of these experiences where 
Um, let's assume we're going to get there. You know, it's just a question of how and not if. So. Going back to junior high, high school, you just mentioned how you played soccer. You were a good soccer player. You also played soccer at Stanford along with running track. When did soccer become a real passion for you? Well, uh, so my dad, actually both my parents played a little bit of adult soccer. Um, my dad's just an American dude from Southern California. Um, but got into soccer in like the over thirties, over forties level in Seattle with a bunch of these guys from other countries who grew up around the sport. And so I would spend a lot of time at their games, just juggling or like I would go out to dinner with them after and they drink beers and like whatever. And I'd just be sitting there like this, you know, little kid. (laughs) Um, and so I hung around that like on a casual level and, um, spent a lot of time doing it. The first team I could play on was a fourth grade team. I mean, my kids by the age of fourth grade had played in probably hundreds of soccer games, you know, but the, four, the first team we could do was fourth grade. And we had a great group of girls um, who were the Musketeers. And, uh, you know, so had a po- really positive experience. Um, and in those days, of course, you know, you, you kick the ball ahead and you had a little speed under you and you had some instant gratification of a lot of goals. So that wasn't a very hard sell. Um, and then, the first kind of select team that you could join. Again, the whole thing was evolving at that point. And this, this is like the early to mid eighties um, was maybe U 13. So sixth, seventh grade, somewhere in there. And uh, so that, you know, kicked it up a level. Um, but I think I've all of these things, including basketball, which I played through high school and I probably at the end of high school, it's probably like my favorite sport. I just, wasn't tall enough or quick enough to do it at the, at the next level. I suffered that same fate. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, are things I just enjoy, like I enjoy doing and I enjoy the process of competing. And those were just kind of like the means through which I expressed those kind of personality traits. I honestly didn't really adopt. I wasn't a runner, you know, in the way that a lot of kids are, or like probably like my kids are like soccer players. You know, I was not that. I just as a person who did sports. Looking back at that period of your life and knowing what you know now as a mother, as a coach, how important is it for kids to be exposed to many different types of sports and activities at a young age and be careful not to specialize too early? Well, I have a couple of viewpoints on that. Um, I grew up not specializing at all to the point where I got to college, still wasn't specializing, probably would have been better at each sport if I had specialized. Maybe you could look back on that and say you should have chosen a different path, but I had a great experience. Um, but I have, I have kids now who, who, although they played a lot of sports in elementary school, um, played some basketball, played, you know, we exposed them informally to all sorts of other sports. They did some running when I was coaching the middle school cross country team and different things. They've, you know, really prioritized soccer, um, I think that it's hard to paint over these things with a broad brush. So from an injury perspective, developmental perspective, I think that distance runners really do themselves a benefit when they play ball sports. And I think that's borne out by science. You know, uh, Dr. Adam Tenforty himself. Also Stanford grad. (laughs) Yeah, but also a pretty smart dude. Very Um, smart dude. You know, worked very hard on, on a study that really showed some good information about um, how much greater the avoidance was of bone injuries in runners if the kids had played ball sports. Particularly, um, I think there was a strong, really strong connection. Boys who had played basketball 
and and were distance runners had like just so many fewer bone injuries than, you know, all sorts of other categories. Women, of course, there's a few more issues at play um, as you go through adolescence. But I do think that you can also participate in sports in a way that don't, not every kid quote unquote specializing in a sport is the kid who needs Tommy John surgery at age 12. You know, um, my kids play in a soccer program that does like agility training and does different types of like, you know, they're very intentional about, you know, neuromuscular stuff, you know, like they, they're, they're, they're doing things in a way that, um, developing the whole they're hoping, athlete, they're hoping to develop athleticism alongside. And so, uh, I think that specialization gets a bad name. There are certain things playing the piano, you know, you could say your 10,000 hours type thing, certain skills do take time to learn. So you can't really avoid that. If you, if you want to, um, if you're passionate about something and you want to be really good at it, it's going to take some time. And I do think if you have some in- intelligence around the way that you set up your training physically, you can avoid some of those pitfalls. That being said, for instance, when I was at Stanford, uh, Katie and Amanda Trotter, two great twins, uh, distance runners out of New Jersey, the fall of their senior year, they were interested in Stanford. We, you know, were almost at the point where we were going to get them to commit, and I was super interested in them. They had played soccer in the fall every year. And uh, I was talking on the phone with them, and they're like, well, the soccer teams, yeah, I don't know about the soccer team this fall. Our track coach really wants us to run cross country, as most track coaches probably would. And I was like, no, play soccer. And I was like, I don't care. Like, I don't care. Your track times are great. We'll run cross country in college. It's all good. Like, have your last fun time playing soccer. We'll deal with, you know, like, I'm good. Like, here I am. I'm recruiting you, and I'm good. You know, you don't need to run cross country. So anyway, it turns out the soccer team wasn't a really good dynamic or whatever that fall. So they turn out for cross country. Well, Katie takes second in the footlogger. So so much on that. I'm like, don't run cross country. Play soccer. You know, so, um, but that was really honestly my perspective on it. Yes, she obviously had the ability to go that far with it. But I, I wasn't, I, you know, we're gonna, we were going to find her with that stuff later. It, she didn't need to do it as, at age 17. You know, that's, that was my perspective. But Back to you as an athlete. In high school, you are a good track athlete, good soccer player, ended up doing both of those sports in college, also played basketball, as you mentioned. When you were deciding on your next steps, how important was it for you to be able to play two of those sports in college? Very important. And it definitely affected the the series, the decision tree as I went along. Um, I grew up in kind of a weird situation where um, I have a lot of family history at Stanford. So, um, and a lot of family athletic history. Um, that was the fourth generation of my family to attend. And uh, my dad, my grandfather, and even my great aunts, like 1906 and stuff, were playing tennis. You know, at like Stanford. Maude and Lucy, these women, you know, and so... The, uh, my great-grandfather was actually the track manager and in, like, 1910 and, then like, a Cox for the, for the crew team. So I had a lot of that baggage as growing <laughs> up. So, um, and, and my mom, you know, was an African-American student at a time when there wasn't a lot of African-American students at Stanford. She took the train out, uh, in the, you know, in the mid-'60s, and, um, you know, there wasn't a lot. There weren't a lot of uh, students doing that at that time. So that, that's all kind of in the background. Um, so when I grew up, I it's knew... It's important that, background, though. <laughs> well, it provides the context. Yeah. So when I was growing up, I kind of, as most people do kind of with their parents, you don't know any better. You're like, oh, that's what I want to do. Like having no idea of like what that means or whatever. When I got in high school, then I was like, oh, well, 
that's pretty good track times. Like, what about over here? And like, what about over there? And start, you know, started kind of thinking, broadening the, uh, you know, just opening my eyes a little bit because of opportunities that were presented themselves through sports. Um, but at that time, again, this is something my kids are tired of hearing about. There were so many fewer opportunities for women in, particularly in soccer, which is crazy, a sport that we now consider Americans to be, you know, fairly dominant, successful. There are more opportunities for women to play college soccer probably than there are kids playing. I mean, there's so many opportunities. But um, for instance, like this I is even, 1990-ish? Yeah, 1990, 91. So I met with Gags, actually. I'm not sure. I still can't remember why I met with Gags, even though Ron Helmer was coaching the women, um, uh, for a home visit. Uh, my senior year had a great, and I was like, oh, I'm going to, you know, Georgetown. I hate, I hate to interrupt. For those of you listening at home, she means Frank Gagliano, who's a legendary <laughs> coach who I'd also love to have on this podcast. But. Yeah. And I'm sure most of the people listening to this podcast probably already know who he is too, but. Um, You'd be surprised. Really? Okay. Well, that's good. Bring more people into the tent. This is good. Um, well, anyway, he's a charismatic figure. And I still remember we were sitting there and he's like, sometimes I just want people, I bring them some pizza. I just want to say Thank you for the pizza. Anyway, that's my gag's impression. But it's, I just remember him saying that. I can't even remember what the context of the story was. Anyway, Georgetown certainly had a great middle distance program at that time. Great school. I was like, that's a great place. But right before I was about to take a visit, I was like, you know what? They don't have a soccer team. And I really, I don't want to give up on that. So same thing with Oregon. I talked to Tom Heinen, you know, and as a Pacific Northwest kid, he, of course, you know, was aware of what was going on and, um, I don't think he was altogether too happy with me that I wasn't, th- you know, but I was like, you don't have a soccer team. I mean, now both those schools, Georgetown's been in the final four for soccer. Oregon is, you know, fully funded, very, you know, flourishing program. Um, but at that time, they didn't even have the opportunity. So my two schools that I took visits to in the end were North Carolina and, and Stanford, um, which were both amazing opportunities. And I love North Carolina. And they had, a, I mean, when I went on my trip to North Carolina, the track coach had shown some uh, some. Uh, interest initially and then I had the opportunity to talk with the soccer coaches a bit and at that time you got to remember this is like the heyday like Mia Ham and all like all these people they were like it so I was just completely starstruck and had a great time um and thought that was just a wonderful place it still is of course um and but when I got accepted to Stanford it made it really hard to say no because of all of you know just because of the opportunity that it presented and um and that was Brooks Johnson recruited me at that time, who was, you know, uh, a strong-minded figure. And, you know, we had a a, a great banter throughout that process. Um, And then, like, in July before, because I wasn't doing cross-country, I wasn't really super in touch with, you know, the summer stuff. July, I get this random letter in the mail. Because in those days, you just got a letter in the mail. There was no type of phone call or email. email. No, yeah, it didn't even exist. So it just said, hi, I'm your new track coach, Vin Lanana. I'm like, who is this guy? Like, what is this? Who is Dartmouth? Like, what's this? You know, but it worked out. So, (laughs) Hey, I want to take a quick break to let you know that this episode is brought to you by my friends at Tracksmith. Tracksmith is an independent running brand based in Boston, not far from where I grew up. They're a group of dedicated runners focused on building technical yet understated running apparel that celebrates the amateur spirit and inspires the personal pursuit of excellence. Tracksmith's products are designed for a specific running function and solve problems unique to the experience of training and racing, whether that's building the perfect pair of half tights for speed workouts or split shorts that are just the right weight and with the right number of pockets to race a marathon. 
And unlike other brands in the industry, Tracksmith's model is direct-to-consumer, which enables them to scour the earth for the most technical materials to meet a specific performance intent without having to compromise to make wholesale margins. Tracksmith's products reflect their New England roots. These are classic, understated, and high-quality essentials for runners who are working toward their next PR. I'll be joining them for the Boston Marathon, hosting a morning shakeout run from their headquarters at 285 Newbury Street. So join us on Saturday, April 13th at 9.30 a.m. for a run along the Charles River and then soak up the energy at the Track House, the undeniable hub of Boston's amateur running community. To learn more, visit tracksmith.com slash Mario. That's my name. Right now, they're running a special offer for new customers. Spend 150 bucks, and you will earn their signature Navy Van Cortland singlet for free. Again, you can learn more at tracksmith.com slash Mario. Follow them on Instagram at tracksmithrunning and shop at tracksmith.com. My thanks to Tracksmith for their support of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. When you got to Stanford, how challenging was it for you to balance being a two sport athlete in a division in division one programs and in a school that has a demanding academic curriculum as well? Well, a lot of adjustments going on there. Yes and no. But I think like most of the kids I know, you know, my kids and their peers who are heavily involved in sports or other activities, they're doing that now. And high school now is so much harder than high school then. I mean, the pressures on these kids, and I say this having a junior and a freshman in high school, it's, it's insane. Like, I definitely remember being up in my basketball uniform working on stuff, you know, late at night, you know, after a game or whatever. We all had those moments if you were, if you're, you know, if you were trying hard. But the level of competition is just the, you know, the admissions situation is just for, for, you know, for all sorts of schools at all sorts of levels and for every, at every point along the way, it's just so much more stressful. So I think kids now actually, <laughs> you know, are so, are, you know, well broken in by the time they get to college. In my case, it was much the same because I had been doing a bunch of different, you know, I had a lot of days in high school where it was like, I was doing, say, so a club soccer practice, club soccer game, and then like getting in a car and driving over to a high school basketball game or going to a track meet and then having to play soccer after, you know, so that, that wasn't that big of a deal. I think it was actually harder for me to do one thing at once and one thing at the other, you know, I couldn't do both at the same time, which was difficult. Um, I think a couple of key things that were difficult for me were, was that I, I went, I came from a small suburb, one high school, um, it was a good high school, good public high school. Um, but you know, I definitely went into my classes thinking, okay, well, this is about enough for an A at Mercer Island high school. And then was like rudely <laughs> awakened to the situation. So I had to definitely like step it up on that. Um, and then also I think, uh, being a miler at a, at a strong level, division one level and being a soccer player, you know, your body needs to be a little bit different. And so that's, took a little while to figure it out. Um, I don't think I ever really did until probably about my senior year, you know, cause it, it definitely was a shift that needed to take place. Um, and navigating that took a little, took a little doing because of course you don't want, you know, there's all sorts of things you don't want in that situation. Um, and you know, there were less kind of enlightened ways of going about these things than there are now. How did you navigate that situation? Um, well, just, uh, <laughs> like we would, uh, you know, if I, if I needed to get lighter, 
I, I guess I would just, you know, I would just eat less. But it took me a while to figure out. I remember being really kind of um, reluctant to accept that I probably should, you know, toggle my body weight a little bit. And I, I'd say this with all the, you know, again, I've spent the last 25 years being around adolescent and young adult female runners. So I'm, uh, you know, this is an issue that is constantly present. Um, but I remember the first time I talked to, to Vin about it one time, um, because I think I came in out of soccer and I would look like a person who'd been playing soccer and hadn't really done much aerobic training for the last, you know, and he's like, well, you know, I think you gotta, uh, do these various things, including, you know, the upshot of basically losing about five pounds. And I was like, you can't expect me to give up dessert. What do you mean? <laughs> like, like that was my perspective on it. Like, because in high school, I was like 150 pounds running the mile in the 800, you know, and towering over girls and just being bigger and like not thinking about it. And that was okay in that situation, but I wasn't necessarily probably operating at my max level. There's nothing wrong with being that weight, but there, there's probably a more efficient, you know, happy medium to be found. And I needed to, I needed to find that in a healthy way. And it took a little while to figure it out because, um, like many things, injuries and all the rest of it, we just didn't think about these things quite the same way as we do now, you know. Um, but it was it was tough. They're definitely, you know, if, if people, there were a lot of outdated ways that people would um, go about things. Um, and I almost don't want to even talk about them here because I, I, I'm always aware of the power of like suggestion of these, sure. of, of suggestion of bad habits. Um, but I'm thankful that my kids are growing up in an era where there is more understanding and education about that. They've already had way more education about nutrition um, than I certainly ever had into adulthood. You know, there's things that I, as a coach, I was like, oh, okay, really? I'm learning, you know, and would have been super helpful 10, 12 years ago to know know that. So, um, so I'm thankful for that. But it's these are challenging issues. When I talk to athletes, I will say this. How do we turn this, how do we bring this conversation around to something useful? Um, one thing that I think Vin did a good job with me on, and I've seen him do a good job with others. I think Lauren could attest to this, um, and that that f- feeds in the way that I try to approach some of these things. Is um, I think sometimes we put food and eating and body weight on like a weird pedestal where we at once want to talk only about that and then also want to completely avoid it. It just becomes this like taboo, crazy, big subject. So if you had like your, you know, the thing where they say like, which word's been searched the most, you know, and like one word's super big and the other words are super small. I feel like that's how we kind of treat it in our conversations. And the way I try to approach it is like, look, Mario, okay. You're going through like training has been a little bit bumpy. You're not feeling like you're making progress. Okay. So let's think back to a time when things were going well, you know, when you were feeling an Again, very careful to not necessarily use like quantitative terms right there, but like when you felt like you were making progress, feeling strong, feeling productive, feeling competitive, like feel like you had something when you needed to go, right. you know, what was going on in your life at that time? So that's a whole variety of things. Maybe, you know, you had a bad breakup and, or, you know, like maybe just right now. So maybe you had a healthy relationship at that time. Maybe you were sleeping nine hours a night. Now you're only sleeping six because of your whatever's happening college student course load or whatever it is. Maybe you, um, 
maybe there was a death in the family now and like that wasn't the case then, or maybe you, um, you know, among those things, it might have been, you know, your weight was different than it is now yeah. or some component of that, you know. Um, so it's all these pieces of the puzzle that need to come together to fuel probably the wrong word to use there, but you know what I mean? To fuel high performance um, sure. and optimal performance. Yeah. And, and nutrition body weight is, can be a key part of that, part of that right. but, it, but one, it definitely needs to be talked about openly. So it doesn't have this taboo attached to it. And two, it needs to talk, be talked about my opinion in the context of the other factors that can be um, just as influential I, for some people that I work with. I work with a lot of grad students and particularly in their first or second year of some of these PhD programs, their sleep is shot is bad. <laughs> it's not good. So, you know, and like, there's not, I mean, someone who isn't rested, there's only so much we can do with them. So it doesn't matter if they had like picture perfect nutrition, if they're only sleeping five hours a night, there's, it's going to be kind of a ceiling on their performance. And you could pull any of those elements out. It's like if they're eating like crap and there's only so much you can do about that. Um, if other things in their life aren't in harmony, it's going to affect performance. There's only so much you can do about that. I think that's an important perspective to keep in mind. Yeah, and I, I'm the first one to admit that um, I certainly haven't, you know, had every perfect conversation that one should have, you know, uh, and there's, there's probably other really good ways of, of approaching it. That's, that's just the, that's kind of just my approach when I, when I try to talk about these things. Um, but I think it's, uh, you know, particularly for girls and women, um, it's just really important. I'm also not a big fan of like, um, blowing it out, you know, like, oh, well, you know, I did this big thing. Now I'm just going to go like have like three days of debauchery with chocolate cake and, you know, it's just like double fisting French fries and whatever, you know, I think, uh, sometimes that makes you, it puts you in the mindset that those things are like, you know, it just gives too much power to the food as, as some sort of forbidden thing that now is like, it's okay. And, and I think that, that, you know, the ideal situation would be where, we have kind of a level-headed, emotional feeling about about some of these things. I like that. Not too high and not too low, and, and that way, you know, hopefully, if we do need to, to toggle what we're doing, it's not like a huge reversal. It's just trying you know, to keep things as even keel yeah, as possible. Just so there's not avoid uh, the extremes. Avoid, yeah, avoid avoid the extremes. Um, and it should, and you know, and life should be fun too. So, I think that. Uh, you know, it's authentic fun is good, but like force fun, like I'm going to, you know, you know. Let's put a pin in that authentic fun part. So I want to come back to that in a little while. But since you had mentioned him a little while ago, and that's Finn Lanana. He was your coach at Stanford. Your first impression of him, I imagine, was the letter that you received in the mail <laughs> saying, hey, I'm going to be your track coach. Yeah. Um, but looking back, he was your coach throughout college. What was that experience and that relationship like for you? Well, we, of course, we then worked together for several years on staff. Yeah, um, we didn't even, we, we'll get to that. Yeah, but yeah I wasn't so, even getting there yet. And I, but those two things are tied together because we, my freshman year, we stunk. We were not very good. And we didn't have a lot of people and we had, didn't, you know, just transition is tough. And so it was really ground floor situation. So as a result, the people that were there 
um, uh, probably had different relationship with, with him than those who maybe kind of, you know, they're half a decade later, a decade later, because there were just not worth that many people around and there weren't that many people. Program who, evolved as well. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And every year he'd recruit these girls and I'd be like, oh gosh, now I got to run, you know, <laughs> I got to keep up with these people. Um, but it was great. And uh, I, you know, we clash heads a lot. Again, like back to the thing of like, what do you mean? You want me to stop eating dessert? You know, I demand my chocolate cake. And, um, or even, you know, just different things. We would have a very frank and sometimes like mildly, you know, combative relationship. Um, but in a way that like, uh, you know, it, it didn't affect, you know, like it wasn't, none of these things were longstanding things. I just was pretty vocal and kind of a rabble rouser. And he, you know, I think didn't mind that a little bit because I actually said stuff, you know, and occasionally, occasionally it was helpful information. So I think when the time came, um, Beth Alfred Sullivan had, um, gotten the opportunity to be a head coach at I think Penn state at the time. And, uh, I was working in the athletic department in another, in another role and I was young and very untested, but, I think I had two things going for me. I knew him and I could speak extemporaneously about Stanford. So um, I think he knew that, that he was someone he could give some responsibility to because I kind of could do the shorthand on what he wanted. Um, and also I could recruit. As an athlete being coached by Vin, what were some of the things that you learned from him under his guidance? Well, one thing that has definitely uh, stuck with me and um, is probably recognizable to the athletes that I coach today, I, there are very few times where I will overtly encourage someone to go anywhere close to their full effort. You know, um, I usually have people hold back a little bit or I tend to kind of get to it through the workout. Um, and he was he was pretty good at kind of, you know, squeezing the toothpaste tube at the right time, you know, to get, get some key intervals out of you without, um, doing that necessarily from, from repeat one. Um, and, uh, I think I also, I, I'm not in especially, I probably, one thing I need to probably, I probably need to be a little bit more ambitious generally. Cause I, um, but he's, he's ambitious and his, you know, a lot of, certainly a lot of, things that he's done, um, relate to kind of, well, why not? Like, let's just, you know, why can't we do this? Let's just do it. You know, everything from, you know, building the track that we all enjoy for these meets that, that was a patch of dirt when I was in school, um, until our senior year, uh, to, you know, building the, the, the Peyton Jordan meet into what it is today, um, to everything that's gone on Oregon, certainly a lot of ambition there. And, you know, certainly when you, when you push the outside the envelope, you don't always make everybody happy with you. You know, there are people, you know, for every time you push somebody's like, Oh, it's an innovator. And then some people are like, Oh, that guy always pushing, you know? And, um, so, but having kind of seen him go through a lot of those or, you know, push for a lot of things that I think we all have actually as a, track community and certainly as a Bay Area community have come to uh, enjoy and appreciate and almost have forgotten mm -hmm. that, that he was a catalyst for a lot of those things. You kind of see that sometimes it takes a little bit of that audacity, yeah, to get things done. So I think that, and I think another, um, uh, I'll tell a little bit of a story. So 
uh, when Lauren Fleshman was a freshman, we knew she'd eventually run the 5K. Um, and you were coaching at the time. So that, yeah, her freshman year was my first year coaching. So we were kind of freshmen together, um, which I think is why we're good friends today because we kind of went through a few things. Um, it was not easy of a year for her for a variety of reasons. And I was certainly figuring junk out as I went along, but he gave me actually a fair amount. He, people would be shocked to gave know how much, <laughs> how much, how much, uh, you know, how people were shocked to know how much input he allowed me. I almost think he was, you know, maybe shouldn't have been, but. How many years out of school were you at that I, point? Well, I was. You started that coaching. Was the fall of 99. I graduated in 96, but so, I'd done a master's till 97. And then I'd worked for USA track and field for a little bit and then come back. So not, not too long. Only three years. Yeah. That's not a long time. No. So, but so she'd gone through fre- freshman fall. She'd done great. Gotten fifth at the, at the NCAA. Still, that was the last year of 5K. A little easier for freshmen to kind of jump in and do that. Indoors, we won the DMR, and she was she got All-American in the 3K. I'm not sure what, I can't remember what place. So she was coming in hot to outdoors, and you kind of figured the 5K was going to be in the mix. She ended up actually running the 1500 at, at NCAAs. But um, we were kind of, you know, whiteboarding about, like, what, should she run or like how fast and like what, you know, what do we think like the goal should be? None of the, she was, she was off in her door, you know, this is just coaches talking. And so we, we thought she could maybe run 1550. Um, and so we kind of geared up some things, a little bit of a plan to kind of see if we could get her there. So anyway, comes to Mount Sac, which again, this is a little while ago when this is what you did. You went to Mount Sac. Um, and she ran 1550 on the dot. Well, come to find out, that was the US U20 record. We had no idea, you know. And now it's, I think Molly Huddle broke it and ran much faster. And, you know, times they are changing. But at the time, it was the fastest US U20 mark. We had no idea. But the point was, to, took a look at her. To, this is what she thinks she can run, or we think she can run. She was like, okay, if you guys think so, that's what I'm going to do. And then she went out and did it. If somebody had told her, hey, you know what, no person in America your age has ever run that run fast. That, fast right. that probably wouldn't have been helpful. It probably wouldn't have been helpful for us to think about that. It's good to be that. naive sometimes. Sometimes. But my, my point was, you know, he, back to what I was saying about this kind of inductive way of looking at coaching, I think he's like, okay, what do we have? A big pile of Lauren. She's running great. What do we think she can run? You know, and then let's just go from there versus some sort of like, ooh, we're kind of bound in by, you know, some other arbitrary limitations, I guess. So back to you at that time, you just mentioned how you got your master's from Stanford and secondary education. You went to work for USA track and field for a little while. And then all of a sudden you're coaching at your alma mater was coaching something that you had an interest in. How did it come on your radar? So not at all. So during the time that I was in grad school, I, um, I got a little help with degree completion or like they had some kind of funds in the athletic department in exchange for working there. So I worked several hours a week at the track office. So I was like doing, like making the sausage for the invitationals fall and spring and doing the stuff that nobody, nobody wants to do. <laughs> you the know, for all work. The yeah. And I was like, I will never do this. This is horrible. How does anybody do this? This is ridiculous. Why would anybody want to do? like, I was like, no way. Um, but uh, and there's a lot of water that went under the bridge. You know, by the time 99 came around, um, I, I just had a different perspective for on, I'd, on a variety of things. I was married. My husband was also working on Stanford campus. And, uh, 
it was it was super hard still. That first year especially was crazy, crazy, crazy hard because it was an Olympic trials year and we just did everything, just pedal to the metal. Had a lot of people doing a lot of things, people at juniors, people at seniors, people at, you know, making world cross, people doing you know, like every, like, it was just major stuff going on. So that was a really, really hard year. Um, but I just was in a different spot and at least I kind of knew a little bit what I was into because... I had done some of the worst bits as a grad student. (laughs) When did the flip switch for you? You realized that coaching, I don't want to say it was, I don't want to put words in your mouth and say it was what you were meant for, but it was that something you wanted to continue to pursue because you're still doing it now. And I certainly want to get into what you've been up to in recent years. So um, I left Stanford in the spring of 2005 um, my second daughter was um, about six months old, and I just there were if we could get into a, a larger philosophical conversation about the way the NCAA staffs are created, you know, putting restrictions on the number of people you can have in different positions versus say like a more, you know, how can you work sh- work share? And some it, there's been a lot of water that's gone under the bridge. So I got I got real involved in in some some issues related to females in coaching and and wrote some op-eds and did some, a conference and did some different things at that time. Um, this is after this is you after. left Stanford? Yeah. Okay. But I kind of thought that chapter was closed as like, for me as an active coach. But honestly, what happened was um, a woman named Chris Passo, who was a senior when I was a freshman and was on the volleyball team, but a capable athlete in track when she was in high school. Um, and I, my roommate in college was on the volleyball team, so I saw those girls a lot. Um, she saw me in the church parking lot and was like, Hey, I'm thinking about taking up some running. And she, you know, she was 35. She probably won't mind me saying at the time. She's like, you know, would you be interested in, you know, working with me a little, maybe 34, but would you be, you know, could you coach me up a little bit? And I was like, sure. So we started working together. She ran like the PA cross country and did some different things and eventually in the spring, as a 34, 35 year old, she ran 427, 1500 meters, which is great. I mean, it's really impressive. Off, she, yeah. And she's, a, she's also subsequently, she's won the 40 plus cross. She won the Olympic trials exhibition. Like, you know, woman can run. She's, she's, yeah, she probably, she probably should have been doing it the whole time. But, um, but so you have like a, somebody in their mid thirties who's run 427 for the first time. What do you do with them? So at that time, of course, they had the USATF club track and field championships. I think it was at Icon that year. And I'm like, that the race was the last couple of years have been won maybe like 423, 425. I'm like, that's what you should do. That's a perfect race for you. There's not a lot of races this time of year. That'd give you a little something, like a little culminating. So we paid 75 bucks and became a club. And that kind of started the rest. And was that the start of what is now Peninsula Distance Club, previously Strava Track Club? Previously. Prior to that, I can't remember what it New was. New Balance Silicon Valley. And previous to that, Peninsula Distance Club. Okay. So it's back to its roots. Yeah. So, yeah, we had, at, at that time, by the time that she ran that race, we had a, a kind of a, an informal group of, of women um, meeting up and running some intervals once a week in the evenings. And uh, so I You actually, were coaching the group? Nominally, I wasn't really coaching anybody. I was deciding what workout we did. You know, I was coaching Chris for sure, but the but the rest of people would show up, and I'd be like, "Okay, we're gonna do." Were you doing the workouts too? Yeah, yeah. So you're player coaching, kind of. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know again, but I, I just, you know, I was enjoying myself. Um, 
so we slowly built, we had a few women, we became, you know, we, um, went from a situation where we had, I remember one year I ran the New York marathon and then two weeks later had to run the PA cross country cause we only had five people. And you know, that was not something that I would advise doing on a lot of, in a lot of ways. You know, I ran a couple club crosses for this group and we slowly grew. Um, and then we partnered up, uh, with New Balance at the time when Josh Rowe had gone over there and he and I had known each other for a long time and they were doing a few, they were doing with pacers and they were doing, you know, they had a couple things going on similarly, and we had a wonderful partnership with them for four or five years. Um, and then we transitioned to working with Strava for a great four years. And that was an exciting time um, because my, my philosophical view on these things when possible is that um, if we can invite more stakeholders to the table beyond like our traditional, you know, shoe companies and whatnot, then we should always try to do so. And our group, we don't really recruit people. People show up every summer. I'll get some phone calls um, or an email. You know, I'm graduated from so-and-so back east or down south, and somebody told me I should give you a call when I moved to the Bay Area. I mean, that's how it goes. Um, watching the farm team through the years, both the time when I participated not very well, but um, and then also like through the Jeff Johnson years, through Gag's years with the farm team, which is a the, before Mario adds the parenthetical himself, is a post-collegiate club that, you know, predated the new, newest version of the Oregon Track Club um, uh, during the late 1990s and early 2000s. They had time, you know, they would, they would have people come from out of town, stay, help, you know, have, raise enough money to help supplement their life. But around here, it's super tough. I mean, you have, as you all know, or listeners may or may not know, I mean, it's, it's having somebody give you a couple hundred dollars for rent is not going to make it possible for it's you to live It's an expensive place it's to live. It's an expensive place to live. So long ago, very early in the process with this group, it made it just a quality decision that like, we're not going to do that because it's unsustainable. We're going to, so our, basically our people fall into four categories. We have students, we have people who got a job and are here. We have people who grew up and are moving back. And we have people whose significant other has brought them here and they have no choice. <laughs> you know, we've had time time people who've, you know, husbands have been in the military and so they're like, you know, they're here. What are they going to do? When you did know? the group expand to include some men? Because now you're fielding squads at like U.S. cross-country championships. You've got men and women qualifying for Olympic trials, national championships. They all fall into those categories that you had just described. When did it go from just you and a group of women who needed to form a PA club into an actual club that had, you know, both genders and people meeting now on a more formal basis. Um, so the first few years, uh, we were, had a partnership with Brooks through, um, a woman you and I were talking about earlier, uh, Liz Wilson. Um, she and I connected and I was like, Hey, I've got this group of women. I think, you know, we're in a good area and she was on board and, uh, put me in touch with whoever. And so we had some support from them. Um, and that, like many things do, ran its course. And at the time when Josh was transitioning to New Balance and we kind of expanding that regional club model. Um, and so as a part of that conversation, it was like, while we're doing this, we should probably, you know, add the men in at this point, just because we're, you know, starting fresh here. And at that time, we also had um, a gentleman uh, named Scott Himmelberger, who, uh, will probably be surprised that his name is coming up on this podcast if he listens, but he, um, he's a kid that I'd known since he was in high school. Cause he'd always come and volunteer at the Stanford invitation. He'd be like one of my go-to guys. He and his friends were like, if I needed like, please somebody just go rake the pit, you know, like he'd be, be there. there. And they came to camp always. And so I knew these kids like 
from very young. And so he had come to, he had gone to Davis, but it started grad school at Stanford. And so he was around and he was an obvious person to kind of kick things off. He had a buddy named Billy Madiker who just graduated from Georgia Tech, was a middle distance runner. And then we were... I met Billy at the one workout of yours that I've been to back in 2014. Yeah. So, and then it kind of, we just, we kind of grow organically like that. And, 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 uh, that's how that started. So, um, but we, you know, we've had a wonderful mix of guys and girls and, you know, we've had people who don't like to race very much, but are great training partners. And when you have guys and girls, you can, uh, just have people run based on pace, not necessarily by gender. And so at times when we've had, you know, super fit women, that's been an asset or, you know, guys who could use a boost. Um, and anyway, you know, we can mix and match. And so that's a, a pleasure to be able to do. How important are these regional clubs to the overall vitality of the sport in this country? Well, I think we're really spoiled in this particular area because there is such a robust club scene in Pacific Association in Northern California. We, I mean, people don't realize who, people who are around here a long time don't realize how good we have it. Really good uh, cross country series. I mean, you run a cross country race here every week from August to November, basically road Grand Prix, short course and long course, a track Grand Prix with like actually pretty good money. People don't realize that track Grand Prix. So, um, I think that there it's, it's a huge asset for keeping people active in competition. Um, I think that I wish they could be replicated in more places um, around the country. I know there are pockets of it, certainly, you know, New York, Boston, probably um, DMV, you know, you have some, some, some good club interaction there, but um, it's not a thing like nobody's getting rich. (laughs) <laughs> off of that stuff, you know, and it's a really, it's a, a developmental space. So, um, it's, it's a challenging environment. And here, as is the case, I think with most people in their twenties, it's a really transient population. So it's hard to keep people for a long time. We have clubs here in this area that are, that are really strong with lots of master's athletes, people who've been, you know, who have set down roots and are here for a long time. And, um, and those clubs provide a lot of volunteers. They sometimes provide a lot of officials, they sometimes, uh, you know, are the people that pay entry fees that help keep small races going um, and do some of those things that that make it possible for the rest of us, you know, dilettantes to be able to dip in and dip out whenever we want. Um, so I think I think it's super crucial. We I think we're particularly strong in the distances here, where some other areas of country might be stronger in the um, in other event areas. Maybe there's some areas of the country that are have more youth sprint. Um, participation than we do. But I think it's always amazing to me when I look at some other countries, particularly, um, you know, England, for example, you know, they have so many open athletes, you know, out of college athlete, aged athletes participating, you know, five heats deep of guys running 350 or whatever, which yes, nobody's making the Olympic games off of that, but that's, that takes training. Like you can't just, you're not going to turn up off the street and run, run that fast. Um, and I'm not sure what's what's stopping us other than so many other things that we have to do with our time. And also probably the um, there's a big filter that gets put up with college in countries like Canada or countries like Great Britain. There isn't as much of a deal made of the college sporting culture. And so I think people, my, my guess is people 
you know, more so look at running as something that's, again, that lifelong pursuit and there's no real timetable where I think a lot of times we have such huge participation in high school. And if you're not going to college and doing that sport, you kind of just... Why would you keep running? Yeah. And there's not really the setup. We have the CRA and some other, you know, really positive things that provide alternative opportunities for athletes who are not doing it at the varsity level. Um, but the pipeline kind of stops there uh, for people who weren't identified as at age 16 or 17 as being good enough to go to that quote unquote next level. Yeah. I think that's an important point. And it's kind of exciting to see now, at least what I'm seeing now, certainly here in the Bay area, but in other areas of the country that you mentioned is you have some folks who didn't run in college. Maybe they didn't even run in high school who are coming back to the sport for one reason, because their friends are part of this club. So they want to join in and they start tapping into potential that they didn't realize that they had. Cause I've met and worked with more and more people now who are running really well and competing and love the sport and are sort of experiencing this, I don't even want to call it a rebirth, like this birth in a way um, in the sport that they hadn't grown up with. Um, and it's there's a little bit of a resurgence going on right now, and I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, particularly among women, I would say. Yeah, um, definitely. such huge participation numbers, and I know that the numbers are moderating a bit, you know, with overall numbers and various things. But, um, you know, when that whole kind of controversy happened with the women's team, um, at, uh, hood to coast and, you know, the race organizer was saying, well, we probably should pay attention to this because 63% or something of our participants are women. women. Like I didn't even realize that cause I kind of associate hood to coast with like these corporate teams and whatever. Um, but that's insane that you would have that information and not kind of take stock of recognizing, um, you know, the women's winner. That's a whole other subject, but I think it's indicative of women taking on challenges cooperatively um, and in their adult age. I think, um, you know, running, it's, it's, uh, it's obviously not something that we unfortunately get to see on TV a lot. It's not something that's hyped up as, I mean, we've always had an association, you know, say, people our age might say, okay, Carl Lewis, we can understand is like, we kind of grew up with as, you know, the fastest guy, or you like associated Carl Lewis with like the fat, or maybe now today people, Usain Bolt or something like that. But, um, there's not a lot of blanket coverage of these things where people, um, aspire to it. My husband's best friend growing up, his two daughters are freshmen in college and they're twins at different schools and they're really great runners. And we've kind of been joking the last couple of years, like he should have been running in high school. Like he's totally built for it. Like he's runs now and is like relatively, you know, productive at his age, but he just never, like, it wasn't cool. Like he was playing basketball, you know, like, but like his kids are great runners. He probably would have been pretty good. You know, it just never entered his mind that that would be something that he would do. You know, and I think there's probably a fair amount of people out there. I oftentimes also think my I joke about like the mom is the X factor sometimes. A lot of this is, you know, becoming less and less true. Again, as people age out of my age of like there wasn't even a soccer team, you know, to now where there's everything. But I would uh, interact in the recruiting set, setting with with girls and their parents. And, you know, a lot of times the mom would say, oh, well, you know, I could always beat the boys in the recess, but then I just, you know, I did cheerleading, you know, or I played tennis um, in high school, you know. 
and you're thinking, you're looking at the kids and like, the reason why you're fast is because your mom has like really good genes and nobody's giving her credit because she never, you know, she never expressed that in a highly competitive way. Um, and I think hopefully that's less and less the case. Um, but, you know, 15, 20 years ago, I found a fair amount of examples. Sure, yeah, that doesn't surprise me one bit. Looking back at your coaching career, which has spanned 20 years now that I think about it, you've coached at a high collegiate level, you coach competitive post-collegiate athletes, you've coached youths, age groupers. What have you learned over the last 20 years as a coach, or how have you grown, I should say? Well, I think every time uh, I do feel stagnant, I'm not aware of the stagnation until something, you know, takes place that I find myself, you know, shaken and kind of, uh, like re, uh, need to rejigger and that's, that's productive. And now that, that isn't always a, like a, a fun experience. Cause you're like, wow, I should have done better at that. I was kind of doing things in the manner I have always done. Um, and I think it's easy to fall into that trap of I've done it this way for a while. So I'll just keep doing it this way. Um, so I think what I'm learning now in my middle age, uh, you know, having had that amount of time, um, doing this type of thing is, uh, just to not let myself, I got to continue to work on not letting myself be comfortable, you know, and only I can really, only you can know what your comfort level currently is. Right. And no matter what people see from the outside, I will know if I'm coasting, if I'm mailing it in, you know, um, or if I didn't apply some decent thought to that decision, um, or that advice or whatever. Um, and so I think that I'm learning continually that just because you have experience and it may, um, you know, don't let it become like clockwork, like keep looking at the situation in a fresh way, you know, resist the urge to let it, you know, to, you know, to let past performance predict future results, you know? Um, and some things, there's some kind of axiomatic things about running that, but, uh, there are a lot of things that are changing and so much. We, the information at hand is evolving so much that there's just such a different difference in the way we go about things, you know? Have you had to change the way that you coach athletes over the last 20 years, given that? Well, it depends on the setting. You know, my, my, I like, I would prefer if I could have a mythical, like I like the kind of the college type pattern. You show up, I look in your eyes, I have an idea of what we're going to do. And then I look in your eyes and I say, okay, yes or no. And then we kind of go, and you would never know the difference. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But with post-collegiate athletes um, or with, you know, athletes, I, I don't see them every day, you know, um, and I don't have, you know, they've got all sorts of other things that I can't control their schedule. And so you have to, you have to make some decisions about planning and, you know, this is a coach, obviously, just kind of crossing your fingers that if we get to this and it's not going well, that you'll be able to kind of make the adjustment without any sort of like kind of, you know, unnecessary mental upset. I'd much prefer, I enjoy watching athletes work out, seeing them, evaluating what's going on, making little adjustments and having that in that interaction. And I, in my current life, I don't get to do as much of that as I wish I could. It's just not set up for that. Um, but, uh, so I've, I've kind of had to adjust to being comfortable with planning things far out and letting people know what they, what they are, um, 
more so than I think I would, I would like to, I'd like to be able to make adjustments. You got your master's in secondary education, do some teaching. Do you look at your primary role as a coach to be a teacher more than anything else? Um, I wouldn't look at it like that because, you know, one of the things I'll say to people when they join our club is like, look, you don't have to be coached by me. You can be a part of this club without, because I, you know, if you have a good relationship still with your college coach or with somebody else in your life, like we're here to support you, but I'm not going to say that I know that you should run 12 400s instead of 11, you know? So I don't necessarily look at it as like teaching because I don't feel, um, I just don't feel like I'm coming down from on high, like showing you the way that it's, that it's done. I look at myself, um, as hopefully an asset. And a lot of times I'll say, you know, if you've been kind of writing your workouts yourself and making it up, you know, you're having all these meetings with yourself. My ankle's sore. Should I still run? You know, my hip flexor's grumpy. Should I still do this? And what I'm asking is for you to just let me in the meeting so we can have the meeting together, <laughs> you know, and I can yeah. help you come out with some, hopefully some, some good decisions out of those meetings rather than when you have the meeting with yourself. Um, so, that's, I, I like to see myself as like, as like an asset, like a, a value add, you know? Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's kind of way I look at it. You know, there's a time or two where, you know, of course you, sometimes you have to make a decision for somebody who won't make it for themselves. And, you know, those are really hard times because you, you, you know, it's the worst. you can't spend that card, you know, very often and you better be right. So, um, those are difficult times, but, uh, I mostly try to, I just to kind of see myself as coming alongside and taking the pressure off people to make decisions for themselves, I guess, or, you know, or to, to make decisions in isolation, I guess, you know, um, not that I don't have opinions. I certainly have opinions. <laughs> Are you afraid to share them? No, <laughs> usually not. Well, you did call yourself a rabble rouser at <laughs> well, Stanford. I don't know. Maybe it's been tempered in my old age, but. Where does that come from? Um, I think both my parents were rabble rousers in their own way, for sure. It just trickled down. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm trying to think of how much, how many stories I want to go in (laughs) to that. Like, so, you know, um, just speaking frankly, I think, you know, in my mom's case, she, uh, she's passed on, but she, um, and her family moved from Panama when she was young to Brooklyn, New York. She went to a high school where there were very few African-American girls, and like, I think it was like 3000 girls and like six black girls. Um, and I think she, 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 you know, from there to coming out to Stanford to going to grad school and different things and throughout her life, she, I think just had kind of a, you know, a little bit of a pugilistic standpoint on certain things, you know, um, born of, I think just having a little bit of a guard up, um, about just the making her way through the different environments that she was in. Um, and my, and my dad, I don't know if he'll ever listen to this podcast. It's, it's just a stub, he's a stubborn guy. He's set in his ways. He's, he's the kind of person who's been set in his way since he was young. So, <laughs> you know, um, so if he believes strongly about something, tough luck. <laughs> so um, I think just literally genetically from them, I probably got a little bit of that. And then, you know, uh, you know, probably in some other, other ways along the way too. Last question before we wrap up here, and it's a two-part one. What's happening in the sport of athletics right now that is really exciting to you? Oh, that's really exciting. Well, um, there's another part to that question. Uh oh. 
Well, there's, you know, there's, gosh, there's some, you know, I thought you were going to say what's happening that's not good or what, you know, because there's been a lot of um, obvious publicity about challenging things from, say, a distance fan's perspective, you know, worldwide. But I think a couple things um, are good. I think that uh, middle distance and distance running, particularly on the women's side in America, is getting faster and faster and better and better. There are more women doing it seriously with, you know, with real intent and training hard and doing great. And I think it's raising the bar in, in an amazing way. In fact, I think that the standards, much of the way that like, you know, people would be shocked to see like the, like what it took to get into the NCAA as a, you know, in the mid nineties when I was running woof, um, to compared to now, uh, I think people will rise to the challenge. You know, the years where, for instance, the Olympic standard was 1508, or I think it was 15, it was 1504, 1508, like in the early 2000s, like, people just did it. They, that was like, okay, I got to run 72s, you know? And then the standard was 1525, 1522, 1520, you know? And then people would run, I got to run 73s, you know? So I kind of feel like um, with the issue of standards, I think people will, you know, with a little time on their side now, like, okay, well, I got to run, uh, you know, 75s in the 10K, or I got to run, you know, 72s in the 5K, and just recalibrate, you know, it's amazing. Rise what the to whatever level they need to. Yeah, or there, you know, and I think there's so many numbers of girls. I mean, look at the depth of the 1500 in the United States. I mean, it's incredible, you know. Um, so... There's a bunch of people out there who are thinking, okay, I got to really have my game together to be able to have any shot at, you know, even making the trials. And I think that level of in intentionality is going to probably yield some pretty fast performances. And I think that's exciting. If you had a magic wand and could change one thing about the sport right now, what would that be? Hmm. Well, I've got one of the thoughts that came into my head. I'm not sure it actually is the one thing I would change. But um, I would do something to preserve the future of the 10,000 and marathon in the Olympics. <laughs> but I'm not sure that's the one thing I would do. But that's the first thing that comes to mind. I was actually listening to a podcast yesterday with uh, two other Stanford people. Sorry, listeners who went to Cal. Um, Julie Fowdy, who is a former teammate of mine at Stanford, and and a woman named Jessica Mendoza, who most people know because she does Sunday night baseball. And she um, is obviously a very gifted softball player and went to a couple Olympics. And just listening to them talk about how Jessica felt when they took softball out of the Olympics. And now they're bringing it back for Tokyo. And she, you know, she's not young, but she was talking about how kind of the, would I come back? Like, would I, you know, like it's such, it was in all the letters that, that she got from little kids, you know, when they took it out of the Olympics and how much effect it has on the participation at the younger levels. Um, I, I have a little bit of, I'm worried a little bit about that. Um, I think the numbers at 10,000 haven't been amazing and them restricting the quota of the marathon worries me also this lack of diamond league 5,000s moving forward. Um, the kind of spotty participation at world cross 
for many countries in terms of full teams or even participating at all. I thought Denmark, like everybody would be on board. And a lot of the European teams aren't sending full squads. Yeah. I mean, 100%. When we were in Uganda two years ago, we were like, okay, well, Denmark, that's a slam dunk. That's like a Ryanair flight away for everybody in Europe. Who's you know, not going to want to go to Denmark? Yeah, that's it's makes all makes sense. It's not that hard of a trip. Um, so I'm, I, have, I have some some magic wand to kind of like just preserve those opportunities so people can still have the dream. Because what Jessica was talking about in the, this podcast, she's like, 15 people make the Olympic softball team. Just like we're only going to send three to Tokyo. We're only going to send three to Doha in each of these events. But it's the dream. You know, and the dream is why we have, what is it, 30 girls under 406 or something crazy, you know, like we have in the 1500. It's the dream that has people, you know, um, working hard every day, like going to that extra weight session, doing their strides, you know, eating right, getting their sleep, getting that extra massage, whatever it is. And, um, and that trickles down. Everybody around them knows that they're training hard. And whether it is the kid in elementary school and middle school who is like inspired to take on running because this cool person that they know is doing running or whether it's just some other kind of random other person in their life who's just inspired to kind of get fit. Um, I think uh, you take away that one person and you take away maybe some, some of those other people and that's not necessarily positive. Don't kill the dream. Don't I will. If possible. Oh. Yeah. Don't kill the dream. We want, we want kids to be, you know, didn't you, when you were a kid, think, I'm going to be in the Olympics? Yeah, oh. absolutely. I remember I had this, like, Anna Quiro, like, trading card, you know, with my little Mia Ham trading card, you know, from Sports Illustrated for Kids. For me, like it was that. basketball. I grew up watching the Dream Team and Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, John Stockton, like, all those guys. And I had, like, remember it was, like, Kellogg's cereal. You get, like, the USA oh, yeah, yeah. jacket that they wore, <laughs> and it, in retrospect, was this cheap thing. But yeah. it was, like, that was the dream. Like, that was... At the time, basketball was my jam, and that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be on the dream team someday. And I think there are definitely kids in this country and around the world who see that in track and field, especially at the longer distances, and are inspired by that, and that's their dream. Yeah. I do have a concern. I mean, so then there's a larger thing about that. Why do we make the Olympics such a big thing? Because the Olympic movement has its problems and has its issues. Don't disagree. Yeah. So we've we kind of... Just automatically, the Olympics is awesome. It's pure. It's the Olympics. It's, you know, the national anthem. It's the hand on your heart. And then, you know, we kind of, you know, the, there's kind of the seedy underbelly of like what goes into each of these things and like, you know, the white elephant stadiums that are left when the circus leaves town. Well, you know, you see that a lot in FIFA and World Cups, obviously, as well as the Olympics. And, um, and then you also think about, say, um, all the positive non-Olympic things that say are going on. I look at the growth of some of you know, you know, sponsors that we've worked with, um, sponsors that we haven't worked with, you know, our club works with Rabbit, um, but say them or Wazelle or Tracksmith or it just, uh, those are off the top of my head, but like a variety of other companies backed by individuals, you know, who are like, I've got an idea. I think people would be into it. There's people out there who enjoy this stuff and it's borne out because people are buying the stuff because they do enjoy it and they're out there they want to have a shirt that's not going to chafe. They want to have some tights that will keep them warm, you know, because they're out there running every day. And there's a lot, there's a lot of that, which I think is really positive. It has nothing to do with the Olympics. Well, just this weekend, I don't know how familiar you are with it, but 
there's this thing called the Speed Project, which is going to run from L.A. to Las Vegas. And there's no prize money. There's nothing to qualify for after it, but there's a lot of excitement around it. People are into it. It's a very different take on running. Parts of it sound exhilarating. Other parts of it sound just awful, like running through the desert and 100-degree heat. But it's like it's an exciting thing, and I guarantee it's going to blow up on people's social media feeds this weekend, and people are going to be talking about it and figuring out, how do I get in on this next year? And I think there's a lot of that happening in running right now that isn't necessarily tied to the sport or the Olympic sport that is getting more people into it. And I think that's great. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I, I look at, um, so a few weeks ago I ran Tokyo and got my six star for a world marathon major. Thank you very much. Um, and it uh, wasn't an auspicious day for competitive running, but my, again, my Weather friend, awful. We, we just, Boston like, but it was kind of <laughs> is what you do when you're a 43 year old marathon. You're like, this is, we're probably starting at a pace. It may not be really what we should start at, but by the time it gets impossible to do, we'll only have a little bit left to go, at which point we'll be able to grab our heads around it and we'll make it. You know, we weren't going all the way over there not to get the thing. So, like, we had waited a year and a half since Berlin. We wanted that flavor Flav <laughs> medallion. That's <laughs> the only medal that I ever... Like, I always say, people are, oh, I love medals. I've never been into medals. That one thing I wanted so bad, so badly, had nothing to do. So we, you know, the suffer fest out there, but we made it. But, for instance, 732 people did that earn their sixth star in Tokyo. Like if you look, they just, Abbott just posted some of the stats, you know, in the pre- previous race, that might be because Tokyo is a little bit harder of a thing. So people kind of saved up for Tokyo to, you know, it takes a while to figure out how to get into that race. But, you know, I think Berlin, it was like 200 and something, like Chicago, 300, you know, like the other races, like it's, it's growing super fast, the amount of people. And if you look at like the Facebook community for world marathon majors, it's people are a little bonkers into about it. it, you know? And, um, so I think that those are, you know, some great, uh, you know, just different types of competitive opportunities that maybe, you know, the once a runner, again, to Carthage reader or, you know, protagonist might not appreciate as much, but now it's like killing tradition. Yeah, now, now it's, you know, um, uh, you know, there's, there's just kind of a different dynamic that's been built that people can respect. Like, Hey, yeah, you ran those six marathons. That's hard. If nothing else, it's logistically challenging. So, you know, hat tip to you. And, um, I'm hopeful that I remain hopeful that the sport will kind of continue to evolve. And, um, it may, I think the scary part is for traditionalists and I'll count myself a little bit among them, you know, you're used to seeing it just be the certain way that it's been, and it might be a little different with different people look you know and that's kind of scary because you feel like something's lost but um by which i do not mean breakdancing in the olympics that's not what i'm talking about but <laughs> there, there are going to be some things that might have to be a little bit different to um to just maybe you know intersect with people in a in a slightly different way and and continue to hopefully spur more growth. I'm interested to see what the mixed relay looks like at Worlds this year, see how that goes. Of course, there's been a couple of events, the one in Australia, and then there was, or was we have one over here. I think uh, the track down meets had that had a mixed relay, you know, where we've seen that. But I'm, I'll be really interested to see how that plays out um, and what if the decision is to move forward, because that's a little, that's disturbing people a little bit. Um, but uh, if the athletes are excited about it, then that's, 
you know, that's awesome. It's not too big of a departure, you know. Um, but I'm hopeful that that good minds will keep thinking of of ways to um, to capture the energy that people obviously have um, for running and athletics in general, you know, including all the, I mean, I'm a little bit worried when you see more and more of the pole vaults and the shot puts be taken out of the stadium and, and elsewhere. Yeah. And right. some of that's good, obviously. And I think like, you know, the Adidas games where they're running on the raised platform straight through Boston commons or wherever it is, you know, wasn't it Drake a few years ago they did, was it the pole vault in the grocery store? Something along those lines. Well, I know Hy-Vee is a big supporter of Drake, so it's, it's quite possible that was what was going I think, on. I think that happened. Yeah. I mean, and th- some of that's cool, but you also don't want to marginalize those athletes sure. too. So I think it's a delicate balance. Um, but, you know, events like the pole, I mean, the, um, the shot put, well, the pole vault too. Pole vault, it's a whole, you know, um, I was talking to someone who's uh, – Oh, my daughter. She had a friend who was doing pole vault in high school on the high school team and was going up to the pole vault summit in Reno for the first time. And they were like, what, what, like what? And I'm like, yeah, pole vaulters, they're not kidding around. Like they're they're just like, what is this? Like all these people, all these different events. And like just the, there was just such, such a rich, vibrant culture and excitement about that discipline there that that's cool to see. I think shot putters have it. When I walked up to the, to the, um, ticket booth, uh, at, um, USA indoors. We had, uh, Oh, cause we were with people who needed to buy tickets and they were like, so do you want to watch the shot put or do you want to watch like the running events? You know, because they're like, Oh, we have those people, all they want to watch the shot put. And so like, we're putting them in this end of the stadium or whatever. And I, I just fundamentally, I found that to be kind of an interesting thing that, is interesting. that they've, yeah. that they've, um, you know, there was that level of interest that people, that the ticket taker was, or the ticket seller was was noticing that. But I think there is a delicate balance. You don't want to have all your pole vaults in the middle of the city when they, when people in the stadium never get to see them. So, Still figuring it out. Yeah. A little oh ways to go. Let's wrap things up. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really enjoyed sitting down and chatting with you. Thanks, Mario. I appreciate it. All right. We did it. Another episode in the books. Thank you so much for listening in. Really hope you enjoyed it. I'd also love your feedback. You can send it to me on Twitter. I'm at Mario Fraioli. That's my name. Or you can go to your podcast app that you're listening to this on and leave a rating and a review. That helps new listeners to discover the show. Only takes a minute and it is the easiest way to show your support. A few thank yous before we wrap this one up. First, thank you to Tracksmith for sponsoring this episode. Tracksmith is an independent running brand based in Boston. They're a group of dedicated runners focused on building technical yet understated running apparel that celebrates the amateur spirit and inspires the personal pursuit of excellence. I'll be joining them during Boston Marathon weekend for a morning shakeout. Come run with us on Saturday, April 13th at 9.30 a.m. for some Charles River Miles followed by Conversation and Linden and True Coffee. That'll take place at the Track House. That's 285 Newbury Street right around the corner from the Boston Marathon finish line. You can learn more at tracksmith.com slash Mario. Follow them on Instagram at tracksmithrunning and shop at tracksmith.com. Also, big thank you to my audio ninja, John Summerford of bearsrecords.com for making this show sound as good as it does week in and week out. He also recorded all the music, which is pretty damn cool. 
Let's see, what else? If you're digging this podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. You'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you will likely enjoy. Okay, that's it. Until next time, I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast. Podcast.